Proverbs chapter 12. As you turn there, let's take a moment and pray together. Father, would you anoint the reading and proclamation of your word this morning with the presence and power of your spirit that we might be transformed by your grace and that we might join you in your healing work in one another's lives and in the lives of, of those far from you. All for your glory and namesake, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. When acclaimed journalist Robert Maynard was just a boy and walking to school one day, he came across an irresistible temptation. In front of him was a fresh slab of just recently poured cement on the sidewalk before him. Like any of us might do, he immediately stopped and began to scratch his name in the sidewalk there. When suddenly, young Robert became aware that standing over him with a garbage can lid was one of the largest men he had ever seen. Maynard tried to run, but this tremendously large man grabbed him and shouted, Why are you trying to ruin my work? Maynard remembers babbling something about just wanting to put his name on the ground. Then this remarkable thing happened just then. The, the man released Maynard's arms. His voice softened. His eyes lost their fire. And instead, there was now a touch of tenderness in the man. What's your name, son? He asked. Robert Maynard, the boy responded. The concrete finisher went on. Well, Robert Maynard, the sidewalk is no place for your name. If you want your name on something, you go into that school, you work hard, you become a lawyer, you hang your shingle out for all the world to see. And tears started to flow from Robert's eyes, but the man wasn't finished yet. He asked Maynard, what do you want to be when you grow up? Maynard responded, a writer, I think. Now, the concrete Finisher's large voice burst forth in tones that could be heard all over the schoolyard. A writer! A writer! Be a writer! Be a writer! A real writer! Have your name on books, not on the sidewalk. After a moment, Maynard crossed the street to head into school. He paused on the other side and looked back. The man was on his knees repairing the damage that Maynard had done, but he looked up and saw the young boy watching and repeated, be a writer. And with those words, the life of that little boy was changed. And Kent Hughes once wrote that there's amazing power in words. You and I can change a life with a kind word. Indeed, Proverbs 18, 21 will go even further and say that life and death are in the power of the tongue. The tongue, we would see, can be an assassin or a midwife. It can give life or it can take it away. And with that, it, it shouldn't come as much of a surprise to us this morning that our mouths, our speech, our words is a predominant subject in the book of Proverbs. In fact, if you were to, to go through and tally up how many times each and every subject in Proverbs is addressed, you would find our speech, our words, our mouths obtaining the most marks. 
Proverbs addresses our mouths more than our finances, marriages, parenting, sex, work, emotions, anything else. Jeff Robertson once said that Proverbs is an encyclopedia of wisdom for our speech. Paul Tripp claims that Proverbs is most fundamentally a treatise on talk. In light of this, I remember one pastor hearing him once say that just to, to invite, he invited us to envision sitting down with Jesus to be mentored and counseled by him and simply asking him, Lord, Lord, what do you want to talk about? And the answer, according to Proverbs, would be this, let's talk about your talk. And that just makes sense when you consider how much we actually do just that. We all talk and we all do it a lot. It's been established that the average person speaks anywhere from 10 to 20,000 words each and every day, perhaps more if you count social media, email, texting, and other similar forms of communication, which means, friends, that we have 10 to 20,000 opportunities or more every single day. 10 to 20,000 or more times a day, we are on the cusp of sinning, hurting, wounding, doing damage, dishonoring or representing God, misrepresenting God, or on the cusp of helping, honoring, encouraging, comforting, glorifying. We have 10 to 20,000 or more opportunities for these kinds of activities every single day. The question is, how are we going to use them? For that reason, we need to listen to wisdom. You'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and rejoicing to the words of our God as he counsels us with wisdom for our words. In Proverbs 12, 18, which says this. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Well, we're at something of a transition point in our series in Proverbs this morning. We began our first 11 Sundays in the book of Proverbs, sequentially working our way through Proverbs chapters 1 to 9. And there we saw the kind of prologue of the book of Proverbs. And it we saw a series of poetic addresses from the king and father Solomon to his sons where he was imploring them, encouraging them, exhorting them, admonishing them to live lives of wisdom and righteousness and to shun lives of folly and wickedness. And in this, we've, we've been hearing the voice of our heavenly father and king, haven't we? As he's been equipping us, beckoning us into lives of wisdom and discernment and attention, he's been preparing us and training us for living as his beloved children and as citizens of his eternal kingdom. And, and I, I don't know about you, but as I've been reading and studying and preaching through Proverbs over the last 11 weeks, I've, I've been feeling something profound. I've I felt cared for by God. I've, I've felt guided in counsel. That at times, I felt, I felt lovingly chastened. Uh, last week, I was talking with Pastor Dan, and, and, and I summed it up in this way. If I had to sum it up in a single word, I would say that I have felt fathered. I have felt fathered by God. I felt as if it would be hard for me to overstate, really, 
how wonderful and sweet this has been. And I hope that this has been your experience and that it continues to be as we transition now into the rest of Proverbs. Because as we close our time in Proverbs chapters 1 to 9 and open up to the body of this book, this is where we're, we're finding boots on the ground guidance and counsel for a life of wisdom. Proverbs 1 to 9 called us to the point of decision. We were called to, to this point of resolution for choosing wisdom over folly and assuming now that we've made the decision for wisdom. Proverbs now goes into an encyclopedia of diverse counsel and guidance for almost every area of life. I mean, here we, we find counsel in Proverbs 10 to 31. We find counsel and guidance for money, for sex, spirituality, morality, marriage, parenting, for being parented, for work, for eating, for drinking, for emotions, and much, much more. And if you've ever read Proverbs before, you'll have noticed this, and you'll have noticed something interesting about all this, that while Proverbs chapters 1 to 9 contains, you know, a logical, sequential flow, the vast majority of Proverbs doesn't. Much of it doesn't seem to contain much of a, 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 an obvious logic or flow to it. Well, of course, the Proverbs are categorized by their several authors and collectors, but aside from that, they seem to be somewhat random for the most part. I mean, right after you finish chapter 9 and get into chapter 10, you find Proverbs on being a good son, gaining wealth, living righteously, working hard, thinking ahead, and on and on it goes, addressing a plethora of other subjects. And when you think about that for just a moment, it makes sense that Proverbs might be structured this way. It is, after all, wise words from a, a father to his children. He's seeking to equip his children with biblical wisdom. He's seeking to live out Deuteronomy 6, teaching his children as they rise and lay down, as they sit in their house and walk on the way. And, and oftentimes, parenting will require one to talk about, you know, 20 different subjects in just five minutes or less on any given day. Sometimes as a parent, I feel like a ping pong ball going from one subject to the next all day long. I find myself talking to my children about subjects like words, quarreling, financial stewardship, bluey, animals, working hard, honoring God, planes, not hitting, picking your nose, patience, table manners, and so much more. And that's all just during dinner time. And so it's, that's what God is, is doing for us here in the book of Proverbs. He's teaching us in this way because that's just how life is. And he's guiding us and counseling us in this incredibly wide variety of subjects because, as we've been saying, wisdom is this skill of living in right relationship with everything in life, which begins with having right relationship with God. God is here seeking to equip his children, those who have been reconciled to him, those who now have right relationship with him through Christ to live in right relationship with everything else in life. He's fathering us, caring for us, guiding us. He's lovingly correcting us all in this book. And this morning, we're looking at this Proverbs in which he's seeking to do this in relationship to our words. Proverbs 12, 18 is our text. It's one sentence with two lines which is known as a parallelism. We're going to see many parallelisms throughout the book of Proverbs. Many of them are parallelisms, one sentence, two lines that are in some way obviously connected, but the particular kind of parallelism we find here is what's called an antithetical parallelism. It's one sentence, two lines, but the two lines are, are offering contrasting ways of living and speaking. They're antithetical to each other. They're opposites. 
And the two lines, therefore, are going to shape and inform and are outlined and, and of the sermon this morning. We're going to look at the first line where we see that the tongue can rend. We'll look at the second line where we see that the tongue can also mend. First, though, we see that the tongue can rend. Oftentimes throughout Proverbs, you'll, you'll see our speech, our, our words symbolized by certain body, body parts, mainly our lips and our tongues, and you can easily see why that is. But in the first line of our proverb here, the tongue is actually depicted as a, something of a sword. And in that, we see that the, the tongue is capable of doing great damage, of tearing, of wounding, of, of rending. It says, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. So we're looking here at a, a, a person who speaks foolishly, right? Rash words are being contrasted with the tongue of the wise in the next line. The first line, therefore, addresses foolish speech. And throughout Proverbs, we, we see various kinds of foolish speech mentioned. There's dishonesty, there's flattery, there's gossip, slander, and and we could say more, those are all forms of foolish speech, but the kind of foolish speech being addressed here is rash speech. We're talking here about impulsive speech, hasty speech, reckless speech. And if you think about it for just a moment, it, it seems to me that the one who's being talked about here is, is of course, rash, but not nefarious, right? He's, he's reckless, but He's not, he's not villainous. In other words, he doesn't seem like the kind of person, it doesn't seem like the kind of person Solomon is referring to here is actually someone who intentionally and carefully does harm with his speech, right? We're, we're, we're seemingly not talking about here premeditated, thoughtfully crafted words that have been carefully ruminated over with the intention to hurt and harm and slander and slay. Undoubtedly, there, there are people like that in this world. We saw that in Proverbs 6 when we walked through that chapter. We saw that, that we would do well to steer clear of those kinds of people and much more to not become such kinds of people. But most of the time, most of us probably aren't there in all reality. We're, of course, all of us capable of it. But most of us are, are not premeditated predatorial dividers with our speech. All of us, of course, have the capacity to sin in our speech. All of us have sinned in our speech. But more often than not, when we engage in sinful speech, it's probably not because we've carefully considered how we might hurt another person with our words. But instead, it's because we're being rash, thoughtless, careless. The kinds of words being addressed here are rash words, hasty words, impulsive words, careless words, words just blurted out without the filter of thought, and yet, Solomon says, those kinds of words can do harm just the same. Rash words, Solomon says, can be like sword thrusts. You know the old nursery rhyme says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. But Proverbs twelve eighteen says, those words could not be more untrue. No, life and death are in the power of the tongue. The, the, the tongue is the most powerful organ you wield. It, it can be, and when it's used to communicate rash, unfiltered words, it's often wielded like a sword. Words spoken rashly can wound, they can stab, they can rend. One commentator says that we should 
picture rash words as like razor blades flying out of our mouths into the bodies of others. If you consider that for a moment, just sword thrusts, blades going into the bodies of others. You're to picture someone stabbing, piercing another with a sword. In fact, some of the other translations make this abundantly clear, like the CSB, which says that rash words are like a piercing sword. They, they pierce, they, they enter inside of you and wound you internally. Consider that for a moment. It's, it's saying that words have a way of piercing, penetrating, of getting inside of you. Right, Derek Kidner, his wonderful commentary on Proverbs, says that what is done to you is of little account beside what is done in you. In other words, it's, it's really often what gets into your heart, what gets into your soul, what lodges itself in your psyche that has a way of affecting you and changing you in the long run for better or worse. And what Solomon is saying here is that these, these rash words, these hurtful words, wounding words spoken impulsively can have a way of doing precisely that. They can get inside of you. They can wound, they can wound your heart and soul, they can affect your inner world in a way that's so damaging and destructive. They can leave scars on your soul that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And yet, how often do we all go on every day speaking without giving much thought to how much our words matter, how much weight our words carry, how much harm our words can do, how much we can affect and alter the inner reality of those we're speaking to. Remember, reading the story of a woman in Los Angeles who took her own life, and her suicide note just said two words, they said, they said. I've talked with fully grown adults who heard cutting, wounding, rending words from their parents while growing up, that they carry with them like scars to this day. I've seen marriages and families crumble because of consistently rash, hurtful words spoken in heated moments. I've seen Christians and churches split because of words. Lives have been taken. Wars have been started. Nations have crumbled, all as a result of rash, impulsive, hasty words. Rash words can do incalculable damage. They wound, they cut, they rend, and so we need to watch out. We need to watch out mainly for, for two kinds of rash speech. First, we need to watch out just for careless speech, which might seem obvious. It is obvious. It's easier said than done. We need to give thought to our words. And there's a plethora of Proverbs that speak to this need. Proverbs 17, 27 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Proverbs 18, 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, he doesn't listen. He doesn't wait. He, he just, he only takes pleasure in expressing his own opinion. Proverbs 21, 23, whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Proverbs 19, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. He restrains himself. Proverbs 29, 20 says, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than him. Suffice, suffice it to say, we would all do well to restrain our words, to put a guard over our mouths, 
to value listening and understanding more than we do expressing our own opinions, to hold ourselves back from speaking at times, to be slow in speech, to filter our words with thought, we would do well to watch out for careless, rash speech proceeding from our lips. And indeed, Jesus gives us sobering motivation to do precisely this in Matthew 12, 36. We see him on, on the day of judgment. People will give account for every careless word they speak. We will one day have to give an account before the God of heaven, the sovereign of the universe, for our rash and rending words. Those words spoken carelessly, those words we've spoken that have wounded God's beloved children and image bearers, we will give an account to him for those. That's a serious and sobering warning. We need to be on the lookout. We need to be aware. And if you're anything like me, there are certain times more so than others where you need to be more so on the lookout. And some time ago, I came across the acronym HALT. Right? Some of you might know this. HALT, H-A-L-T, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Right? Acronym helpfully advises you when you're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and you're about to speak, halt, stop, you're probably going to say something stupid and hurtful. Think about what you're about to say before you say it, because it's often when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired that you speak rashly, impulsively, foolishly, and are thus more likely to speak words that rend and wound and do damage. Often in, in my life, I don't know about you, but often in my life, when I've said the most foolish and hurtful things, it's been like right before a mealtime when I'm hungry or late at night when I'm tired or, or on a day where the night before I didn't get a good night's sleep or when I'm feeling frustrated or stressed or lonely for whatever reason. That's when I've been most rash. That's when I've been most hurtful with my words. And I'd be willing to bet the same for you. And so we'd always do well to be careful with our words, but especially so when mealtime is approaching, when it's late at night and an argument starts with your spouse or your child or roommate, when you didn't sleep well the night before, when you've been dealing with a lot of stress at work, when your neighbor, I don't know, messes up something in your yard, making you angry, when you just feel alone and isolated, that's when we need to be especially on alert. That's when we're most likely to be rash and to rend. But then careless speech is often, often accompanied by its, its twin that we also need to be on the lookout for, which is excessive speech. Watch out for excessive speech. Like careless speech, excessive speech is addressed much throughout Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 13.3 tells us, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Right? Proverbs will advise us more and more again and again to be slow to speak, to not talk too much. On that 10 to 20,000 daily word count, it'd be better to be closer to 10 if you can. Because excessive speech is really often a form of rash speech. People who talk a lot are usually people who just blurt out 
much of whatever comes to mind, and that's certainly not prudent. That's by definition rash and therefore unwise, and moreover, it's not rare for those who speak excessively to speak especially hurtful words at times. Because in all likelihood, the more you speak, the more likely you are to say something stupid and hurtful. So watch out not only for careless speech, but for excessive speech. Because friends, here's the rub. Our, our words matter. They carry weight. They carry power. And when we speak rashly, carelessly, excessively, we can do horrific damage. And we will one day have to give an account to God for those words. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. The tongue can rend. But on the other hand, because of the power of the tongue, because of the weightiness of our words, we're also capable of of wonderful things. We're capable of creating wonderful, magnificent realities through our speech. The tongue can hurt, but it can also heal. The tongue can rend, but it can also mend. The tongue can do a world of harm, but it can also do a world of good. The second line in our proverb says, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The tongue of the wise brings healing. The word translated as healing there is a fascinating word. It's a diverse word. It's translated elsewhere as health. Proverbs 16, 24 translates this word as gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health, health to the body. Proverbs 15, 4 translates the same word as gentle, saying that a gentle tongue is a tree of life. Elsewhere in the Bible, the same word is used to speak about medicinal therapeutic remedies. In all this, it's it's giving a picture of restoring health and wholeness through the application of skillful care. Words are meant to create life and abundance and shalom and health in those who hear them. I mean, that's what we see words do in, in the beginning of the Bible, isn't it? What happens in Genesis 1? We see God speak. And what happens as a result of God's speech, abundance, wholeness, health, life is blossomed. It's flung into existence and flourishes exceedingly. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, you're to be astonished and awestruck at the overflow and abundance of this wonderful world God has created. It's, it's fruitful and multiplying and abounding and blessed and happy. It's good and flourishing and thriving and prospering. And what is the source of this blossoming creation? The words of God. And then he creates, among all the animals, one particular creature that is his own image. And like him, it's also able to speak. Unlike any other created thing, it's able to speak. That's us. We are able to speak like the God who created us so that by our speaking, we're able to cultivate and contribute to the health and flourishing and thriving and wholeness of those around us, just like the God in whose image we were made. Of course, we know that we often don't do that with our speech, do we? Our words are are sometimes often false, hurtful, slanderous, gossipy, harmful, rash, careless. 
Our words are often like sword thrusts. Our words sometimes bring death and destruction rather than life and wholeness, and such is the result of listening and living under the destructive words of that deceptive serpent in the beginning. Right? Jesus tells us in John 10.10 that he comes to steal and kill and destroy. And when we use our words to do the same, we're acting more like him than we are the God in whose image we're made. But what's more is that God didn't leave us to our folly and fallenness. He he sent his son. He sent the one, John 1 calls, the word of God. Jesus is the word of God, and the word came not to steal, kill, and destroy, John 10 10 tells us, but that we might have life and have it abundantly. He came to bring shalom. He came to restore. He came to begin this work of wholeness and flourishing in our lives now, and he will complete it when he comes again. It's no coincidence. That in the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth, he went around doing signs and ministries of healing in his first coming. He came healing the lame, the leprous, the lonely. He came restoring sight and speech and hearing. He came bringing wholeness to bodies as signs of his redeeming and healing work that he's accomplishing in our broke and sin-sick lives and in this world. Isaiah 42, 3 sums up the life and work and ministry of Jesus by saying, A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Those are the God-ordained descriptions of the life and ministry of Jesus. That is to say that the, the Son of God, the Word of God, Jesus of Nazareth, is one who came to bring healing and wholeness to us. And this he accomplishes ultimately through his cross, doesn't he? It's precisely what he accomplished. Through his cross, he paid the penalty we deserve for our sins so that we could have a right relationship with God, a healed relationship with God. And in having a healed relationship with our God, we ourselves are being increasingly healed and restored and renewed. And and what I want you to see here in light of this is that it is one of the most Christ-like things we can do then in this life is to be agents of his healing and hope in the lives of others. To use our words to bring healing and wholeness into the lives of others. Do you see that? Christian, isn't this what Jesus is doing in your life? Isn't this what he's done? Isn't this what he's doing in you? Isn't he, by his word, putting you back together? restoring you, healing you, cultivating wholeness in you? Isn't he at work giving you an abundance of life in measure now and in fullness in eternity? That's what our Savior does. In measure now and in fullness in the age to come. And that's what he's inviting us to join in him now through this proverb. He's inviting us to become instruments of his healing power in the lives of others with our words. He's inviting us to be used of him to bring wholeness and health into the life of those around us. He's he's inviting us to be a means through which he works his health and healing power in those around you. And who wouldn't want to be a part of that? And it sounds wonderful to me. Don't, Don't you want to be the kind of community 
Don't you want to be the kind of church wherein we're being used of God to cultivate life and healing in one another's lives? Isn't that what our city needs? Don't you feel like that's what you need? I know that's what I need. Isn't that what each and every single one of us needs? That's what we need. And that's what we're being invited into. We're being invited into something life-changing here. It makes me just excited to think about what we could be if we take this proverb seriously. If we take God and His Word seriously, what, what He might do with us, what He might make us into, what kind of church we might be if we take this proverb seriously. And that just begs the question then, how can we take Him seriously here? How can we begin to live into what we're being invited into here? How can we as a community, as households, as individuals, begin to live into this wise vision for healing words? How do we go about speaking in this way? Well, first, I would say this. We should speak encouraging words to one another. We should speak encouraging words. It might just seem like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Encouraging words. But think about the way the Bible talks about encouragement for a moment. Proverbs 12, 25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word. I have a different translation that says an encouraging word. A good word, an encouraging word, a kind word makes him glad. If, if you want to brighten someone's day, especially someone who, who's weighed down and weary, speak an encouraging word. But even more, the New Testament repeatedly commends and commands encouragement to us. A really edifying exercise for any Christian would be to go to the New Testament and search for all of the one another commands. Just go to your Bible app and type in one another and just look at all the New Testament references. You'll find all sorts of commands there in the New Testament dealing with how we're to treat one another and interact with one another and care for one another in the church. We're to love one another and outdo one another in showing each other honor, Romans 12.10. We're to comfort one another, 2 Corinthians 13.11. We're to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, Ephesians 4.32. And we could go on and on. There's many more. But one of the repeated one another commands in the New Testament is that we're to encourage one another. See this in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, 1 Thessalonians 5.11. We see this in Hebrews 10.25. And those are not the only places we see the importance of encouragement in the New Testament. We see examples of it multiple times throughout Acts. We see a desire for it in Romans 1.12. We see it as a central purpose of our Sunday gatherings in 1 Corinthians 4.14.3 and 31. We see it desired and purposed and prayed for in Philippians 2.1 and Colossians 2.2 and Colossians 4.8 and multiple places elsewhere in the New Testament. Encouragement is put forth as a huge deal. All that to say, encouragement is to be a central part of our life together as a New Testament church. One scholar once said that encouragement is one of the most important ministries in the church of the New Testament. And if I could just be really frank with you for a moment. I've, I've been learning, and, and the, Lord has been, the Lord has been dealing with me about this recently. I, I'm increasingly convicted that I've thought far too little of the importance of encouragement throughout most of my Christian life. 
And to be even more frank, I, I'm afraid that it sometimes affected the, the, the life of our church in ways that are unhelpful. Some of you know this about me. Naturally speaking, I'm, I'm personally more prone to be the, the kind of person that sees what's wrong in myself and in others and in our community. And so I'm often more prone to just criticism and, and fault-finding. There have been many times that in the name of pursuing maybe theological correctness or biblical fidelity, that I've probably been a really exhausting person to be around. If you've experienced me that way, I'm really thankful for your patience. And I ask for your forgiveness. But I don't want to be a critical, pedantic person. I want to be an encouraging person who builds others up in the gospel. I want, to be, I want to be that for our church. I want that for our church as a whole. I want that for you. I want that for my family. I want that for our city. Because here's, here's the thing. This is one of the things I've just learned over the last, I don't know, seven, eight years of pastoral ministry. Here's something I've learned is that there's not one person in this church, there's not one person in our city, there's not one person that you're going to interact with this week who's not in need of encouragement in some way, shape, or form. Ray Ortland once said that, I've never met anyone suffering from too much encouragement in Christ. Listen, take a look around right now and take a look in the room right now, just look around you're not going to see one person that is overly comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're not going to see one person who has too much confidence in Christ. You're not going to see one person who's got too much assurance of their salvation. You're not going to see one person who's filled with too much hope for heaven. There's not one person suffering from too much God-glorifying affirmation. There's not one person in this room who couldn't use someone else telling them about the evidences of God's grace that you see in their life. But I'll tell you that there are people in this room who are feeling anxious and afraid for one reason or another. There are people in this room who are feeling too much false guilt or shame. There are people in this room who are feeling condemned because of their sins, even though they've all been washed away by the precious blood of Jesus. There are people in this room carrying wounds from the insults and criticisms of others. There are people in this room who are feeling lonely. There are people in this room struggling with doubt. There are people in this room who feel unsure that they're truly forgiven in Christ. There are people in this room who feel unseen, unnoticed, uncared for. There are people in this room who aren't enjoying the fullness of comfort that belongs to those who are beloved children of God. And so listen... There's no one in this room who couldn't use encouragement. There's no one in this room who wouldn't be grateful to be on the receiving end of healing words from a wise tongue this morning. Rosaria Butterfield once said, we never know the treacherous path that others take to arrive in the pew next to us. 
So let's speak encouraging words to one another. Then, we also need to speak lovingly truthful words to one another as well. Speak lovingly truthful words. Some of you are maybe a little uncomfortable with how positive and affirmational I just got. In our theological tradition, maybe we can tend to be a little uncomfortable with words like encouragement. We tend to be sometimes maybe a little more at home with rebuke and reproof and challenging and confronting, which is kind of weird and probably unhealthy. Yet at the same time, we don't want to be unbalanced here because the scriptures as a whole and Proverbs in particular also speak about the necessity of reproof and rebuke at times. Proverbs will often praise those who take wise reproof to heart. And it will also commend gentle rebuke as a practice of the wise. Proverbs 28, 23 tells us, He who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. So understand, that there are times where the tongue of the wise will become something like a blade. Sometimes the, the tongue of the wise will cut. But its, its result and aim is different than the sword thrusts of, of rash words. Sometimes the wise tongue will cut in order to heal like the scalpel of a wise and skillful surgeon. Sometimes in the Christian life, in the church member life, there's a need to rebuke one another. There's a need to correct and, and confront one another. Only when it's done in wisdom, the aim of Christian correction is to cure, not condemn. The aim of wise rebuke is restoration. The point of it is not to scold or dress someone down, but to heal and restore one another. Instructed in Galatians 6.1, where the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You should chide him? No. Scold him? No. Shame him? No. Restore him in a spirit of gentleness, right? There are times where the loving thing to do in the Christian life is to move towards someone in loving confrontation for their own good so that they might be brought to repentance and restoration instead of heading down the dangerous road of folly and sin. We need to be there for one another in this way in our church. This is part of having a wise healing tongue. Then notice the spirit of the confrontation. Galatians 6.1, Paul says, do it in a spirit of gentleness. Ephesians 4.15 communicates something similar, and it encourages speaking the truth in love as a way of helping one another grow up in maturity in Christ. And Proverbs corroborates this very thing. Proverbs 15.1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you want to just make someone angry in your rebuke, Say it harshly. Proverbs 15, 4, a gentle tongue is a tree of life, right? We're to approach rebuke and reproof and correction and confrontation with a spirit of gentleness and tenderness. We're to consider our words. We're to consider our tone. We're to consider our demeanor. We're not to go into moments of confrontation, guns blazing, ready for a fight. We're not to go in speaking brusquely and tersely. No, we we speak with gentleness and grace. We season our rebuking words with encouragement and affirmation when possible. It might even, I heard someone, I can't remember who, I heard someone suggest one time, maybe sandwiching your rebuke with 
the bread of affirmation and encouragement. Might make it a little more palatable. For rebuking, we, we might assure those who are rebuking that we love them, that we want what's best for them. And in all, it would do well, we would do well to do so without chiding or scolding or shaming. We don't see those one another commands in the New Testament. I don't see scold one another in the New Testament, chide one another in the New Testament, shame one another in the New Testament. Instead, when we engage in the necessary ministry of rebuke, we do so with love and gentleness and patience. That's part of what it means to have a wise and healing tongue. And then lastly, and and really the, the call to speak encouraging words, lovingly truthful words, all really requires us to do this first, is to savor God's words and gospel to savor God's words and gospel, to savor the words of the Bible, to savor the Christ-centered, gospel-focused words of the scriptures. I mean, think about this. If we want to be a healing people, we need to be those who are increasingly being healed ourselves. If we want to be an encouraging people, we first need to be an encouraged people. If we want to tell the truth in gentle and loving ways, we need to be those who are lovingly chastened ourselves. And if we want to experience the satisfaction of being increasingly healed, regularly encouraged, lovingly chastened people, we don't find a better supply for that kind of thing than in the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to be a people who savor the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must plaster our reality with the Bible. The gospel must shape and form who we are. It needs to inform our entire reality. We have to preach the truth of the gospel to ourselves every day. We must give ourselves to meditating on the scriptures daily. We need to treasure it up in our hearts and store it in our memories. We need to study it and pay close attention to it. Charles Spurgeon once said, precisely what I'm trying to say, but much better. He said, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I've seen the silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we to do with the word of the Lord, not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our inmost parts. It is idle merely to let the eye glance over the words or to recollect the poetical expressions or the historic facts. But it is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models. And what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. He's saying, get this word with its life-changing, heart-healing, soul-encouraging, truth-telling, gently-correcting truths into your hearts. And then by getting it into your heart, let it inform and flavor all your speech. Because listen, as Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. Listen, all of us, we're only going to speak words that correspond with what is inside of our hearts. And so if we're not depositing the wisdom and the healing words of God, if we're not drawing on the encouragement and loving truth of Scripture, if we're not reveling in the truth of the gospel, those kinds of words are not going to be flowing from our mouths. A glass can only spill what it contains, and a mouth can only speak what it contains 
what's contained in the heart. And so here's the call. Friends, look at the Word of God. Look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at who your Savior is for you. Look at what He's done for you. Look at how the Son of God stepped out of glory and into humiliation for you. Look at how He lived the life that you should have lived. Look at how He died the death that you deserve to die, and he did so in your place, taking on the penalty and punishment for every careless word, every rash word, every false word, every hurtful word, every God-belittling, human-belittling word. Look at how he did so for your healing, for your life, for your flourishing. Look at how he rose to give you a new nature and a new identity and new patterns of speech. Look at how he brought you into the family of God, making you God's very own beloved child. Stare at those truths until your heart sinks. Ruminate over that truth and be encouraged. Bask in that truth and be healed. And then get out there and join your God in his healing, life-giving work in the world by speaking biblically saturated, gospel-focused words of encouragement and truth because the tongue is powerful. Yes, it does and has and can rend, but by God's grace, your tongue can be set free more and more to mend for his glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this table, seal this word upon our hearts. Fill our eyes with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you fill our eyes and fill our hearts with that reality, let us be those who go out into the world speaking healing words, encouraging words, lovingly truthful words, gentle words, kind words, uplifting words, words that build up words that bring others into saving faith to Jesus Christ, words that bring others into greater rest, deeper rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. We need your spirit. We need your power. We can do nothing apart from you, and so we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen.